say you love this country, you say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. You say you love this country and the freedoms that we share, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. They say America is dying. They say America is dead. But there's a lot of people lying. And there's a lot left unsaid. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate, where we learn survival skills one day at a time. The intro music is America is Dying, But It's Not Too Late by Day Brain Jeremy Harrell. So go on over to YouTube and check out their patriotic music. Tonight, I'm going to talk about building shelters for your family and beyond, and outdoor cooking for your family or community when the poop hits the fan. The video you're about to watch and hear is Michael from Asymmetrical Preparedness talking about motivation when the poop hits the fan. Enjoy. Motivation. Get it. Have it. Do it. Hey, everybody. This is Michael with Asymmetrical Preparedness. Get motivated to do the things. Get out and do the things. Like I talked about my prep of the day today, man. I've been go, 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 go all day. Yes. Accomplishing a bunch of things. Man, I didn't get anything done in the garden today. I didn't get any, I look around and sometimes I feel like I didn't get anything accomplished. But I was busy all day. Um, sometimes you just got to keep up on the things. Sometimes you don't get to make progress towards preparedness. But I'll tell you what, just doing the things, taking care of your family, getting stuff done, running errands, all these kind of things, it's still part of life. You got to get it done. You got to go, 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 go. You got to get things done. You got to stay motivated. You got to be hard. You got to get hard. All these kind of things, mentally, physically, spiritually. And if you're doing the things and you are, you know, you're busy all the time, think how much you're getting accomplished. And it's just, I don't know. It's one of those things that uh, if you're a motivated type person, like I am, I'm high speed, you know, high speed, low drag. <laughs> no, seriously. The more that you emphasize things that motivate you, the more you'll get done. Uh, today was one of those frustrating days for me. But I got to stay motivated. I got to stay positive. Because I had to do, I had to run errands. I had to get some groceries. I had to do some pickups for um, some of those farm pickups for neighbors, for friends, for family. You know, take some over to the, over to the neighbors. Um, a, a big care package of, of food and stuff like that for them. But I'll tell you what, that's building connections. That's motivating. So did I do a prep of the day? Yeah, I worked my butt off all day. How many calories did I burn? A lot. A lot more than I've, <laughs> I've eaten. So far today, yeah, I had like a slice of pizza and uh, a couple crackers and uh, maybe uh, I had some, a couple meatballs. Uh, yeah, I, I, I forget to eat. I get so busy. I get so motivated in doing the things. Uh, I'm running around. Like my, mom, my wife says, I'm clumsy sometimes because I'm trying to do so much so fast, so hard that, um, you know, I, I trip over things or, you know, I'm trying to go too fast. So part of it is you got to slow yourself down. Take a breath. As you can tell, I'm all fired up. I've been running around doing the things. Sometimes you got to slow down. You got to find what motivates you. What motivates you? Food storage? Yeah, check. The ability to produce your, produce your own food? Check. The ability to take care of your family, no matter what happens. That's what prepping's about, right? We prep out of peace of mind, not out of fear here. Uh, because we know, right, what is prepping? Prepping is living insurance. Yes, it is. So find ways to get yourself motivated. Um, a good way to do that is make lists and check off things as you go. That helps me stay motivated and it look, I can look and say, okay, what do I need to do? 
because there's so many, so much to do, so many things to do. I can't keep track of it all. I'll, I'll let things slide. My wife's like, oh, I asked you to do that. <sighs> Sorry, babe. I forgot. I totally forgot. I've been so busy. And another thing is pick a direction and try to stick to it. Um, I'm bad about that. I'll be doing something and I'll see something else. I'll run over there and I'll take care of that. And then I'll see something else and I'll take care of that. And I'll run over here and I'll do, do something else. I'll take care of that. Um, I get a lot done that way, but I may not accomplish that one thing that like my wife wanted me to. And uh, so focus on a goal, focus on a path, stay focused, make lists, check things off. And uh, yeah, always do the things. Don't slow down. Take a break as necessary, of course. I got to take it easy on my knees sometimes. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you what. Want to go to bed tonight? Yeah, I'll sleep good. And so will you if you get out and do the things. If you're out there running, like I said, running and gunning, even though I wasn't doing this stuff today, I was running and gunning doing things, you know, um, staying busy, accomplishing a lot. I still haven't even finished putting down all that mulch, all the, uh, the wood chips in, in and around the yard. That's on the priority list, but we're also trying to get house ready for a possible, possible move to the Ozarks or somewhere else. I don't know. But um, yeah, and that's a lot on our plate also. Stress, that, that's part of life. How to mitigate and manage stress. Oh, that's a whole other video topic. But I'll tell you what, some people deal with stress very, uh, very well. Some people do, don't deal with it very well. Some people are flexible. I'm a very flexible type person. Semper Gumby, always flexible. Right, you got to roll the punches. You got to be dynamic. You got to be able to um, change yourself in any changing situation, so that you can triumph, so that you can um, succeed where others may fail. Uh, a lot of that's motivation. Stay mo personally motivated. Always strive to better yourself. Always be better. Always be faster. Always be more fit. Always eat healthier. Um, always be a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better follower of him. Um, whatever it may be, motivate yourself. Get motivated. Come on, let's do these things. Get motivated. I'm serious. There, there's a lot to do and a little time to do it. We may be up against a wall here soon. I don't know. I hope not. But I'll tell you what, if you're motivated and get all this stuff done, you'll be better off. I guarantee it. Hey, I'm glad my son turned that light on. I got a little more light. <laughs> anyway, stay motivated. Do the things. I love you guys. Have a wonderful day and blessings to you and yours. As Michael was saying in asymmetrical preparedness, motivation is very important. We are so tired of hearing, it's, poop is going to hit the fan any minute now. Stuff is going to happen any minute now. And we are just tired, not just tired of hearing it, but tired of what's going on in this nation. And we just want to just back up into, into the woods and just say, you know what, screw it. But like most survivalists, you've probably already given plenty of thought to the things needed to care for you and your family in an emergency situation. You've thought about and compared all of the various challenges that a poop hit the fan scenario could occur. And you've made your plans for coping with any of the challenges that each scenario could present, right? You've packed a bug out bag. You've familiarized yourself with local lands. You've learned to identify locally abundant food sources. You've invested thousands of dollars in survival equipment, taught yourself emergency first aid, and you stocked the basement with non-perishable foods. Simply put, you're ready to protect and care for your family should the unthinkable occur. But as so often the case, the most difficult challenges are those that are unforeseen. So while you may be prepared to take good care of your family, plans may go right out the window if other individuals or families appear during the middle of a survival situation. 
at this point, you're going to have to reevaluate your plans, your supplies, your entire approach. One of the most important things that you'll need to do is figure out how to accommodate everyone. If you're living in the wilderness, the shelter will need to be built big enough for your whole group. This is different than making one only large enough for your little family. So let's talk about some things to keep in mind when you're hosting unexpected visitors or when you must construct a large shelter for multiple families. This way, you'll be prepared to care for your family no matter who stumbles across your path. It wouldn't be unusual to have unexpected or uninvited guests show up at your home during a poop hits the fan scenario. This is especially true for those who are well known for being prepared. Your extended family and friends are not going to play head over to a layabout Lou's house during an emergency. They're going to head for Prepper Paul's house. In my community, in my little circle of friends, only those pre-approved are allowed. No exceptions. Some people do not have the fortitude to turn away family and friends, but you must prioritize who will be allowed and who will not be and discuss this with certain people so they understand it in advance. This is going to, that sounds harsh, but in reality, in an emergency poop hits the fan situation, you must think of you and your immediate family and those that you have trained with, you spent time with, and is approved to be in your little circle, period. If your entire extended family shows up on the doorstep, you'll need to find physical space for them. Do you want to do that? Okay, let's say you do. It not only means that you need to find them a place to sleep, but provide them enough elbow room to keep everyone comfortable. You'll also need to find places for everyone's stuff, all the stuff that they bring with them. You'll also have to have enough food, toiletry items, water, all of that for each individual. And if you did not plan for that, then your supplies will dwindle very quickly. So if you are thinking about allowing extended family and certain people on your doorstep that were, you know, expectedly unexpected, then plan ahead and do what you need to to fit those circumstances. Planning for such contingencies ensures that you can give a helping hand to loved ones without putting your immediate family at risk. This primarily means coming up with a plan to deal with some of the most likely problems that's going to present themselves. Some of the best ways to do this include make use of as many rooms as possible. You're going to quickly run out of bedrooms while offering accommodations to large groups. Be sure to take advantage of other rooms in your home, such as dining rooms, offices, dens. You can even use the space in a large closet or even in the laundry room. Encourage people to congregate outdoors whenever possible. Even if you only have a few visitors, everyone will remain more comfortable if outdoors as much as possible. Plus, your house will withstand less wear and tear. Consider doing things like dinner preparation out on the back patio or the back porch. 
and always encourage children to play outdoors with supervision, of course. We call it backyard bickering. It's not really bickering, but, you know, that's what we call it. Is you, you go outside, you go in the backyard or the front yard, and you just sit on the porch and you just talk. You have debate. You talk about whatever. You set up tents or shelters. At a certain point, you're going to run out of room for the people. When this happens, you can provide your visitors with tents or a makeshift shelter. It's always preferable to stay indoors at night, and there's value in being adjacent to a home in such situations. It pays to have plenty of cordage and tarps on your on hand to rig makeshift tent, tents with ease and emphasize ventilation. Even if you still have electricity and running water, your home will begin to smell somewhat ripe after spending several days inside with a group of people. Try to limit this phenomenon by keeping as many doors and windows open as you can. And it's not always possible in cold weather, weather, but should be standard practice in the spring, summer, and early fall. Take advantage of the vertical space in your home. It will not take long to use all of the available floor space in your home. So you'll want to stack items as much as possible just to be sure to keep safety in mind and take the time to stack things carefully. Keep high value items indoors. You'll often find it helpful to store a lot of your belongings and supplies of your visitors outdoors. Just be sure to keep the most valuable, delicate, and perishable items indoors. This will allow you to keep those items safe from the elements, wildlife, and thieves. You need to establish ground rules from the outset. It's important to be a gracious host and to make your guests comfortable as you'd want the same from them. But it's your home and you're the one calling the shots. Talking about ground rules proactively can help avoid conflicts and misunderstandings. Everyone must be on the same page of what the rules are from the beginning. Use thermal characteristics of your home to your advantage. Your home likely has places that remain a little warmer or cooler than others. Try to use these opportunities to keep everyone comfortable. For example, if some guests are sick, they may appreciate the warmest nooks and crannies of your home. Set up curtains or barriers to provide some semblance of privacy. And even though your guests may be sleeping in relatively cramped quarters, you can make them more comfortable by erecting a barrier and screens whenever possible. These barriers need not be elaborate either. Simply string up some cordage and clip some sheets or curtains to it. Consider enclosing exposed decks to provide more shelter. Rig a roof for a deck or a similar area if you run out of space indoors. This will generally be easier than making individual shelters and will be more comfortable to use. Just be sure to angle the tarp or whatever you're using for the roof at an angle pointing away from your home. Use the gear that your guests bring to help insulate your home. If power is lost in the winter, you'll be battling low temperatures constantly. One way to help keep the home as warm as possible is by blocking some of the windows with the gear that your guests have brought. 
Use care to avoid creating a fire hazard. Obviously, do not block exits, but try to keep items in front of as many windows as possible. Be sure that your guests know any pertinent safety information. Everyone's home is set up differently. You know the best exit to use in case of a fire or how to light the pilot light on your finicky range, but your guests won't know that. You'll want to cover these things with at least one member of every family that shows up on your doorstep. So now let's talk about building a shelter with a plan of action. Each situation is going to differ in a lot of ways. It requires different strategies and solutions to the challenges faced. There are a few basic things you'll need to do whenever it's necessary to construct a shelter for a lot of people. But generally speaking, you'll need to complete the following four steps in these types of situations. Assessment. The first thing you'll want to do is challenge. The first thing you want to do in any challenging scenario is to take stock of the situation. Then you'll be able to calmly address each aspect of the challenge and make the best plan of attack. This requires you to ask yourself a series of questions. Where are you going to construct the shelter? Unless you're going to go crazy and build a shelter inside the side of a hill, try to establish your shelter on flat ground. It's important to avoid building the shelter in a floodplain or beneath a dead tree, which may fall on your shelter in strong winds. You'll also want to consider the location with respect to trails and water sources. It's better to avoid having to walk too far to access water and other resources. What type of climate and weather will confront you? While you cannot accurately predict the weather, and Mother Nature is really no respecter of persons, it's a good idea plan for the most likely conditions. This will help drive a lot of the decisions that you'll be making during the design and construction phases. For example, you'll want to consider whether it makes more sense to construct the shelter under the tree canopy or out in the open. Trees will help shield your shelter from the rain, snow, and wind. Although keep in mind that shelters built in open spaces will heat up more quickly in the morning sunshine. The weather will dictate how much insulation, how watertight the roof must be, and whether or not a fire pit is needed inside the structure. And will you be able to do it with the materials that you are using? What types of materials do you have at your disposal? The materials available to you will play a large role in determining the type and size of the shelter that you build. Most shelters will be primarily constructed from logs, which are typically in the forests and other wilderness areas. You'll also need plenty of cordage for lashing everything together. You can make cordage from grapevine and similar natural materials unless you have an abundance of paracord or twine in your bug out bag. If you've packed your bug out bag and you've packed it well, there will be a big tarp or sheet of plastic to use over the roof. You can make a relatively waterproof roof with only natural materials, but a tarp makes the task so much easier. How many people must the shelter accommodate? The size of your group will determine the necessary size of the shelter. 
a large shelter is needed to accommodate a dozen people, then you would have to house half as many. There aren't any hard and fast rules regarding shelter size. You'll have to adapt the space available and materials on hand. It's wise to make shelters a bit small during cool weather and a bit large during warmer weather. These adjustments help to keep the internal temperatures more comfortable. How long must the shelter last? Well, the longer you use the shelter, the more investment and effort in the construction process is needed to ensure that it lasts. If you're only going to need the shelter for a night or two, then your time will be better spent on other tasks. You must always be sure that your shelter is safe and structurally sound. Do not spend time on minor details if you plan to change locations in the next few days. Number two, planning. Always need an operational plan. Now that you understand your assets, liabilities, and challenges, from step one, you can begin sketching out a plan. Do not hesitate to draw your blueprints on the ground if you need to. This can be especially helpful when building complex shelters or when several people will be contributing to the construction process. Also, be sure to account for local trees, rocks, and other objects in the vicinity when devising your plan. You'll have to allow for these obstacles and may even find it helpful to incorporate them into the design. A sturdy horizontal tree branch could make great support for the shelter's roof, while a large rock will help retain heat from a fire. These are the things that you need to keep in mind. Number three, construction. Once you've decided on a plan, begin constructing your shelter. It's always wise to begin by gathering any materials necessary, such as logs and vegetation, then set everything up neatly. This will make the process go much more smoothly and prevent you from having to stop for more supplies. You can enlist plenty of people when building a shelter, but be sure to appoint a like a foreman who will lead the process. This will prevent many of the squabbles and disagreements which are sure to occur in such a stressful situation. It is awful, excuse me, it is often helpful to break the group into teams with each focusing on a distinct task. For example, um, one group of people may be responsible for preparing the logs, another could be tasked with raising the logs into position, and another group would be responsible for lashing the logs in place. This will generally help make the project proceed more smoothly. Number four, adjustments. A survival shelter rarely works the way you intend on the first try. This is experience talking. You'll have to spend a bit of time tweaking the shelter's design and construction to address problems. Look for things like holes in the roof which may allow rain or snow to enter. Take a moment to assess the structure's stability. You do not want it to collapse in a strong wind. You should also try out the entrances and exits to ensure they're large enough to allow people to pass through easily. It makes sense to have the entire group enter the structure to verify that it's large enough for everyone to use at the same time. I don't mean like everyone goes in at the same time and comes out at the same time, but some people are larger than others. Always fix any of, of these or any other problems before considering your shelter is complete. Do not hesitate to make adjustments in the coming days because you'll need to. 
building a shelter, choosing the right design for your needs. So let's hit a variety of different shelters that you can make to accommodate a large group of people. Each style is best suited for a different set of circumstances. Some of the most popular styles and the situations to which they're best suited are A-frame. And A-frame shelters are rather easy to construct and they usually shed water very well if fitted with a plastic or tarped covered roof. A-frames remain pretty cool in warm winter due to the ample headroom that they provide. They're roomy enough to allow you to stand in the middle. But however, A-frame shelters do not provide the most effective use of space or materials. Wind can pass through them quite easily and make them a bit chilly in the winter. You can use green bows to make a roof for an A-frame shelter, but a tarp will make it so much more waterproof. And best suited for A-frame shelters are a good option for very large groups, especially those who do not need the shelter to last for a very long time. So let's hit a log cabin. A log cabin type shelter is one of the most durable and comfortable styles that you can construct, but they require a great deal of time to build. You'll need to collect and prepare a large number of logs and branches to build such a structure. And accordingly, they are not the best option for very large groups or situations in which shelter is only needed for a brief period of time. But while they are not quick or easy to build, the log cabin shelters are typically quite effective. They'll keep you very warm in the winter and cool in the summer. You build a slanted roof to keep rain from collecting on top, and it's definitely advantageous to use tarp to keep it as waterproof as possible. It's best suited for medium-sized groups that will be using the shelter for an extended period of time. And then there's the dugout. If it's a hilly region, you can often make an excellent shelter by building it into the side of a hill. This will alleviate the need to build an entire wall. It'll reduce the required size of the side walls, and it will provide excellent insulation against the cold. And particularly, if the prevailing wind comes from the direction of the hill. To build a shelter like that, you'll need to excavate a significant amount of soil from the side to create a back wall. The roof timbers can then be hammered directly into the hillside soil and supported by vertical supports at the front of the structure. From this point forward, finish the shelter as you would a log cabin style shelter. And a dugout style shelter is best suited. Um, they're remarkably sturdy, so they'll excel in places where there's strong winds. They'll keep you much warmer than most types of other shelters, and they're most appropriate for medium-sized groups. Uh, how do you define large, medium, and small groups? That is a good question. I would say a small group would be four to six people, Medium-sized group would be seven or eight people to 16 people, and a large group would be anything over 16 people. That would be my take on it. Everybody else in different community situations would might have a different idea of numbers in their heads of what is a large, medium, and small group. Then there's the lean-tos. 
A lean-to is the simple type of shelter that you can construct, but they're often quite effective if designed well. A lean-to essentially consists of a single panel leaned up against a sturdy object such as a tree or a boulder and then lashed into place. The lean-to shelter can keep you dry even in the heaviest downpour if they are well made. And although it will always be easier to keep the roof waterproof if you have a tarp, lean-to shelters will not keep you very warm, nor will they last very long. Yet they can be very quickly built if stormy weather threatens. Because they're very simple to build, you can make a lean-to shelter large enough for just about any size group. You could build one relatively quickly, especially if multiple people help with the construction process. However, they are a poor choice for especially cold climates and places with strong wind gusts. Or you can always commandeer an existing shelter. Sometimes you may be able to find an existing shelter that's large enough to accommodate your group. This is almost always the best possible turn of events as it will alleviate the need to construct one or cram people into your own home. And then there's caves and caves can be found in many forested areas and will often offer some of the best shelter for miles. It can be difficult to find caves large enough to accommodate a large group of people, but you'll frequently find small caves in close proximity to each other. So this will allow the group to stay in close contact and still access shelter. Caves frequently harbor wildlife and other dangers, so always use caution when you enter them. Do not drink any water you may find in the cave as it's likely to be contaminated. Do your best to light the area to prevent people from falling or bumping their head on low-hanging rocks. Then there's man-made structures. Cabins, ranger stations, storage buildings and barns are found throughout rural and sub-suburban areas. You may stumble across a man-made structure during a survival situation. These types of structures will almost always offer the best possible accommodations for a large group. They may even offer creature comforts such as running water or a wood-burning stove or even a sofa to sit on. It's always important to be cautious when entering a man-made structure as it may have occupants who will not take too kindly and will not be amused to trespassers. Abandoned structures are obviously preferable But in a survival situation, you may have to do what is necessary to access the building. Always attempt to barter or negotiate a peaceful arrangement if possible. But should your family's safety be in jeopardy, you may have to take the structure by force. Assorted tips for sheltering large groups. Whether you're trying to accommodate people in your home or are forced to build a shelter in the wild, Each survival situation presents its own unique challenges. No matter what the details of your situation are, there are a few things that you can do in most cases to help alleviate friction and stress. As much as possible, listen to these following tips and see if you can try to put them into practice. Diffuse any confrontation as quickly as possible. 
tempers are going to be short in survival situations. Everyone will be trying to keep their own family's best interest in mind. Minor disagreements will quickly escalate. Encourage the feuding parties to separate for 10 or 15 minutes, calm down, and then revisit the problem when they have clearer heads. And set up a rotation schedule to ensure everyone gets to enjoy limited resources. For example, if one portion of the home or shelter is obviously superior to the others, ensure that each family gets to take a turn enjoying that area. Similarly, you'll want to divvy up bathroom time to each family. Make a master list of your assets. One of the advantages of teaming up with other survivalists is that you'll all have benefit from a greater assortment of tools, equipment, and supplies. While personal property rights should still be respected, it's wise to list the various items that are available. The group can then make the best use of the things at their disposal. Take turns handling the chores. It's important to ensure that nobody feels slighted or saddled with an unfair workload, especially in a survival situation. You'll want to be sure that everyone takes a turn with just basic chores. For example, each family should take a turn collecting wood, assisting with the cooking chores, scouting out resources, etc. Prioritize the care of the young, old, or the injured. Most large groups will contain both healthy, able-bodied adults and an assortment of other people who will require a a little more help. Be sure that those who need extra help are adequately assisted and that the burden of this help is split equally amongst the healthy members of the group. Establish a daily check-in time. If your group's going to be splitting up frequently to tend to various tasks, it's wise to have a routine check-in time. All members of the group should be counted. This will help ensure that anyone who becomes lost will be noticed as quickly as possible. It may even be preferable to establish two check-in times, one in the morning and one at night. Build multiple fires if you're living outside with a large group. A fire can help fight off the winter chill and keep everyone more comfortable. A single fire may not be the most effective way to keep everyone warm in all situations. So multiple fires will allow people to spread out a little bit more. Plus, multiple fires offer some insurance. If one of the fires go out, you can reignite it with the other fire. Play to the strengths of the group. While it's important to make sure that everyone takes their turn performing basic chores, it always makes sense to leverage the individual skills of your various members. For example, anyone with a construction background should spend the bulk of their time constructing and caring for the shelter or doing the maintenance tasks for the home that you live in. Similarly, if one of your members is an excellent hunter, they should spend the most time trying to acquire food for the group. Try to remain as calm and as patient as possible. Any type of survival situation is sure to be stressful. And this is especially true of those that involve a group of strangers. Just try to keep an even keel 
during any ordeal. And remember that the other members of the group are struggling with the same challenges that you are. Sometimes it is best to eat a piece of humble pie and walk away than it is to keep the argument going. You can talk about whatever is bothering you later, but not while the anger is seething. Do not be afraid to break with the group if necessary. Multiple families working together improves your chances of surviving a difficult situation. However, there may come a time that it's better for your family to head off on its own, or you can kindly ask your visitors to depart. While you want as many people to survive the ordeal as possible, always keep your family's need at the forefront. We have this thing at Ranch 1.0 that only people who have been voted in are allowed at Ranch 1.0. What I mean by voted in is, say, for example, the poop hits the fan and a group comes up or a family comes up and they want us to help them or they want to stay at the ranch. Every single person who is a, how you would say, for lack of a better word, resident of the ranch, every single person has to have a yes vote for the person or the family that wants to come in and join. If one person says no, then it's no. They do not have to give a reason. If they say no, it's no. We do that so there are no misunderstandings or problems or somebody's instincts or spidey senses go off every time somebody walks by. Keep in mind that more people can mean more resources. Family members and neighbors may show up whether you planned for them or not. You do not want to be forced into a situation where choosing between the right action and endangering your resources is necessary. With some planning and a little strategy, your current plans can be made to accommodate other families if that is what you choose to do. Now let's add some community cooking off the grid. If you've never tried it before, it is hard to explain the challenges of cooking a decent tasting group meal without, without electricity, gas, or even running water. Even if you've devoted a great deal of time and money to your survival food storage, the work is not complete yet. Your food prep is not complete until you gain the experience to cook for a large group without utilities. My vote and what I say is go out in your backyard. Learn to cook with a Dutch oven. Learn to cook with a cast iron skillet over a flame. I've routinely cooked elaborate meals during my survival classes without the benefit of any utilities for over 20 years. That does not make me an expert because I do not believe in experts. does not make me a professional at it. It just makes me practiced. These meals have typically fed teams or groups of people of 15 to 20. And on two occasions, and with a lot of help, I've fed groups up to 70. You can cook good-tasting food off the grid. It just takes practice, experience, planning, and sometimes a little bit of luck. Always think safety. Dirty conditions and spoiled food can sicken everyone you're trying to feed, even in any home kitchen or restaurant today. 
you simply cannot afford this in an emergency. Since bad food and filth will be the norm during a crisis, food safety has to be the top concern for off-the-grid cooks. This safety-first mentality has to be applied to every aspect of food storage, meal preparation, serving, cleanup, and kitchen location. Now store your food right. Food has to be stored in a place that's secure from disease spreading pests like rodents and cockroaches, ants. The environmental conditions should also be suitable for food storage. You cannot just throw a bunch of frozen pizzas in a cooler after a summertime disaster and hope they do not spoil. Remember to store things cool, dry, and dark. You can also store things frozen if your emergency setting is in a cold climate or cold season. Cook your food well. Everything touching the food should be as clean as possible during preparation. The food should be thoroughly cooked to destroy any pathogens. This is particularly important when cooking fresh meat or using the water you've collected. If the water you've collected has come from a a pond, a lake, a stream, a river, boil that water first before you wash your food in it. Now serve it safely. Paper plates and plastic spoons are great because you can always burn them. But you're going to eventually run out. Make sure every reusable cup, plate, bowl, serving utensil, piece of cutlery is disinfected before food touches it. I have titanium plates for emergency situations. I have stainless steel plates for emergency situations. They are easier to clean and easier to disinfect. Hand washing should be mandatory before each person is served. All food should be served by a server. Buffet style is not smart in a disaster setting. Some people will take more than their share. Plus, if the first guy in line has poop on his hands and he holds a serving spoon that everyone else is going to touch, every person behind him runs the risk of getting sick. You have one server that has gloves on and they do the serving. Clean up thoroughly. Dishwashing certainly does not seem like a life or death issue, but it could be. Dirty dishes can lead to diarrhea, which can become deadly dysentery without proper medical care. I also know of a young lady who contracted bacterial meningitis from dirty dishes during a primitive living experiment. Nobody enjoys doing the dishes, but it has to be done. It's best if the cook staff handles dishwashing with the same level of cleanness as food prep. Make your diners do their own dishes if you're shorthanded. Place four buckets in a row to create a dishwashing statement. All four buckets should have a few gallons of disinfected water in them. Scrape the food scraps from the plates and bowls for pets or the livestock to eat. Chickens and Guinea will eat 
anything. Then go to the first bucket that is simply hot water with a scrub brush to clean off all major food residue. Bucket two is hot soapy water and a scrubber for serious cleaning. Bucket three is a hot water rinse to remove soap residue. The final bucket is cold water and a splash of bleach. This disinfects the dishes. Set your wet dishes on racks, racks to dry, preferably in direct sunlight as UV ray kills many pathogens. Put the racks from a few dishwashing machines for easy repurposed dish drying racks. Use fresh water in the buckets for dishwashing after each meal. I have seen on extended camp trips how certain people would run their dishwater in the morning, do their breakfast and lunch dishes with that same water, and then heat the water up for their supper dishes. No, 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 do not do that. Talk about bacteria. Location. Consider the kitchen location carefully if you are forced to cook outdoors. Your kitchen site should be uphill, upwind, and far away from anywhere that harbors bacteria and draws flies like the, the latrine or the bathroom, any butchering area or anything like that. Set away from there. The site should offer shade and protection from the wind. Use existing shelters or pitch a tarp for rain protection, too. Consider security as well. Most methods of outdoor cooking produces good smells, and these wafting aromas may draw attention that you do not want. Starving people are well documented as having the sharpest sense of smell, so watch your menu and cooking methods in crisis zones. A simple pot of rice, meat, and vegetables cooked indoors on a camping stove will produce a lot less scent the post-apocalyptic wood-fired barbecue pit in your backyard. Now, find your fuels. You can forget about cooking on your electric range in a grid-down setting. You'll need heat from other sources, like wood, gas, sunlight. Even in most deserts, there's wood to burn for fuel. You may also have wood strewn about after a destructive disaster like a tornado or hurricane. Most home framing is softwood like pine that can be cut up for firewood. Shipping pallets are typically hardwoods and they can be used as well. Make sure you do not burn pressure treated wood like the greenish yellow wood used for decks as the fumes in the smoke of that is toxic. You should also learn which trees and woody plants produce nasty-tasting or toxic sm smoke like poison sumac. If you have LP gas surfacing your home, it's an option for cooking after certain disasters, though you should shut it off for safety after an earthquake. Bottled propane is portable and easy to use. Your existing propane grill or turkey fryer burner may save the day for group cooking until the bottle runs out. Camping stoves also run on propane or similar fuels, which are great while they last. 
solar ovens and similar cookers can be great for small groups in sunny areas. They typically lack the volume for large group cooking, but they're also painfully slow. And now your methods matter. Okay. The Mad Max barbecue pit I mentioned earlier does sound pretty awesome. This may even make sense to you if you just shot a feral hog in the middle of nowhere. But you'll probably need more practical options for day-to-day cooking. Boil, wait, and eat. Freeze-dried meals are so easy, and there's so many on the market. The long shelf life is up to 30 years, and that is amazing. The drawback is that the price tag is prohibitive. Forget about serving suggestions. These are often ridiculously small portions. Look at the calorie content instead. It could be more than $20 a day per person, unless you bought them cheap and probably gross freeze-dried food assortment. Just for 2,000 calories of food per person, unless you're rich. That's a tough way to feed a group. The plus side is that it's easy to cook the food. You boil some water. You remove the O2 absorber from the bag. You dump the water in the bag. You wait 10 minutes. You eat out of the bag. Then you just have one dirty spoon to wash. Stove, grills, and burners. As long as the fuel bottles last, your existing outdoor cooking equipment will be very useful. Camping stoves can cook for small groups. Turkey fryer burners used for a big pot of soup can feed a large group. Your propane hamburger grill, it's pretty handy too. You can grill your meats, cook those frozen pizzas that are melting. You can efficiently boil and fry if the grill has a side burner for pots and pans. Once the propane is gone, shovel a little dirt into the bottom of the grill to keep the the hot coals from melting the the, the metal and then burn wood in your repurposed propane grill. There's the open fire concept. This is how our ancestors cooked for a millennia, and it's still a viable backup plan today. Build a hearth by stacking up a C-shaped wall from bricks or cinder blocks or stones to about two feet tall. Size it to fit available racks, like from your burger grills or home ovens. Once you have a metal rack resting securely atop the fireproof wall, test it for stability. If there's no risk of your structure collapsing, start a fire under the rack and start cooking. You can also use a Dutch oven or a similar cook pot with or without a tripod. Hang the pot by the tripod to boil over the fire. Place the lid on the pot and bury it in the coals to bake or roast. And you pick a smart menu. It's easy to dream about juicy, smoky roasted meats when you think about survival cooking techniques. However, a pot of soup makes a lot more sense. Survival is all about calorie acquisition and management. Wasting calories in an emergency would be like wasting water in the driest desert. It's stupid. So if you want to feed a group effectively, consider soups and stews as a stable food. 
animal meat surrenders every calorie to the hot hot soup pot, including every precious drop of fat, when cut up and simmered until tender. This is much smarter than roasting meat over the fire and losing the fat that drips it out. Just add some veggies and starches to the pot of broth and then throw on your meat. This will give you a filling meal that's easy to cook, filling, and wholesome. Simmer the meat for a few hours on the bone to get the minerals that are needed for good health. Many Native American peoples and so many of our other ancestors lived off of soups, stews, broth, gruel, porridge. We can too. Of the four main cooking methods, you'll have the easiest time boiling. And parting tips. There's so much more we could address. But for now, I'll leave you with a few hard-learned tips to make your off-grid cooking easier. Plan ahead. Do not just buy random foods and ingredients based on shelf life. Plan your food storage purchases around a rotating menu of simple meals. And have a top chef. Extra kitchen helpers are great, but too many cooks spoil the broth. Someone needs to take the lead. What we like to do at Ranch 1.0 is families take turns. The woman of the house is usually the, the lead cook for that family that is cooking for the rest of the community. Plan ahead. Do not just buy random foods. I already said that. <laughs> set up set up work areas. Grab or build some tables to create separate areas for the preparation of meat, preparation for food that will be served raw, and food serving. And learn to cook from scratch. This is a whole skillet set all unto itself. Get some tips from your elders and practice. That is not as hard as you think. Never turn your back. The meal that gets ignored gets burned. Never lose focus on your cooking tasks. If you are the daily chief cook and bottle washer, then that is your job for that day. Keep an eye on the food because people are going to get grumpy, farty, snorty, sneezy, and unhappy if their food is burned. Keep it moving. Thicker foods like stew, oatmeal, porridge, and rice, they're very easy to burn, especially easy to burn over a fire and in large volumes. They need to be stirred often. Use a square tool like a spatula to scrape the bottom of the pot. Keep your flames low and not quite touching the bottom of the pot. And do not be scared of fat. This is the macronutrient that our hardworking bodies crave. Plus, it's a prime vehicle for flavor and spice. So make sure you add a little bit of edible fat to your cooking. It'll taste a whole lot better, better and you'll have a whole lot more calories. And if you go back and listen to some of the survival shows that I've done, learn from them. And I encourage you to do that. You never know when you're going to need to put these skills to use in a real-life situation, then we could be closer to that day than you know.
This ends broadcast for me tonight. Remember, Thursday night, May 20th, we conclude the interview with veteran Malachias Gaskin of the Warfighters Garden. You will not want to miss what this man is doing to help veterans and help others cope with PTSD. Remember, everyone, train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time.